sometimes the rants are worth it. Hello, and welcome to the Yeah No Journal Club, episode number four. In each episode, we dissect an article from the psychiatry literature with the goal of understanding both the clinical importance of the study and key aspects of research design and methods. We start with a single confusing sentence from the paper and go from there, with the goal of getting from yeah, no, I don't get it, to yes, yes, this totally makes sense. I'm Dr. Adrienne Delacruz. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and the Peter O'Donnell Brain Institute at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. I'm Marissa Toops. I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry at UT Austin Dell Medical School. And hi, I'm Adam Brenner. I'm the vice chair for education in the Department of Psychiatry at UT Southwestern in Dallas. The paper we're going to be discussing today is from Popova and colleagues. The title is Efficacy and Safety of Flexibly Dosed S-Ketamine Nasal Spray Combined with a Newly Initiated Oral Antidepressant in Treatment-Resistant Depression, a Randomized Double-Blind Active Controlled Study. It was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in June of 2019, pages 428 to 438. Adam, there's a sentence that's confusing to you. So I was reading through the introduction and following it along really pretty well and understanding this was going to be a phase three study of a nasal spray esketamine. And then I got to the methods and the study design. So it says... The study consisted of three phases. One, a four-week screening and prospective observation phase, during which treatment response to the current ongoing oral antidepressants was assessed. Two, a four-week treatment phase during which participants received a new oral antidepressant combined with either esketamine nasal spray or placebo nasal spray. And three, a post-treatment follow-up phase of up to 24 weeks. I guess I understood at the end of the paper that they weren't going to discuss the third part of that because it didn't come up. But I don't know that I really understand why the first two were set up that way. Marissa, do you have a good handle on the phases of the study? Oh, yes. I do as well. Um, and Adam, thank you for pointing out that saying they did a phase three study in three phases. The word phase means a couple of different things. <laughs> yes, I, I didn't even think about that. I think it's probably worth noting that Marissa and I have potentially a couple of levels of involvement in this trial and related trials. I have been a study physician on some of the intranasal ketamine trials. And I don't think I was an active study physician on what is reported here. I could have been a backup study physician and I could have done a visit on this part of this study. I was a study physician on several of the preliminary trials that led to this one for Janssen. And so this was when Adrian and I both had affiliation with a depression center at UT Southwestern that was a study site for these studies. This particular study happened after I had left there, but we do have a lot of familiarity with this. And I think we both feel quite comfortable with critiquing this paper. Yeah, so now that we've, we can disprove our bias by critiquing the paper hardcore. Adam, in addition to your question about what's up with the phases, there are several other things to discuss in this study, including the use of their word active control. How exactly are they using that word and how do most people use that word? That's probably worth talking about. So this was a study that involved 227 adults ages 18 to 64 with treatment-resistant depression. And treatment-resistant depression is a slightly squishy term. In this paper, the patient had to have no more than 25% improvement on somewhere between one and five adequate antidepressant trials in their current depressive episode. And they had to be on an antidepressant that they were not responding to. They had to be on that one for at least two weeks. They had to have a single 
episode of MDD that lasted at least two years where they had to meet criteria for recurrent MDD. They could not have any psychotic features. And they also had to have a score of at least a 34 on the IDS clinician rated scale. So if this sounds complicated, it is, but it's pretty typical of industry-sponsored trials for an indication of treatment-resistant and the way of defining a medication trial is typically using another measure called the ATRQ. So yes. it's basically a list of like every antidepressant and you ask them, did you take this? And then how did it go? Do you remember why you stopped it? And they're like, I don't know. It was five years ago. And I don't know, like I had side effects, whatever. And did I get better? I don't know. It takes you a long time and you both feel frustrated at the imperfect nature of human memory. I was wondering, does this have implications in terms of FDA approval and what you can market for? In other words, can one get FDA approval specifically for treatment-resistant depression? Yes. yes. We should actually back up and make clear yeah. that this was a phase three trial, which was done in pursuit of an FDA indication for esketamine for treatment-resistant depression. So, And it is unusual for such trials to be published in an academic journal. We'll circle back to that because there's, there's some interesting things to point out in the series of events around that. So yes, these data are a big part of what led to the FDA approval of intranasal escatamine, and its indication is for treatment-resistant depression. So that long definition of people who were allowed in is more or less what the FDA uses to define treatment-resistant depression. And in keeping in line with the idea that this is an efficacy trial, we are, they are really trying to establish, does this medicine work? They also have a pretty long list of exclusion criteria, which are worth keeping in mind as a practicing psychiatrist if you're going to make a recommendation about intranasal esketamine. So the exclusion criteria were homicidal ideation or suicidal ideation with intent or any suicidal behavior in the past year. So these were patients who were quite depressed. They could have suicidal ideation, but they could not have intent currently or an attempt in the past year. The other exclusions were psychosis, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, comorbid OCD, intellectual disability, anything on the autism spectrum, moderate or severe substance use disorder in the past six months, or any urine drug screen that was positive for a drug of abuse during screening, including cannabis, and they also could not have a history of non-response to ECT. So they are looking for severely depressed patients, but a very pure major depression. We can say like this patient's mood disorder is major depression and that there are not other contributing factors. This makes this type of study very difficult to do because I, it's hard to find these magical people. I refer to them as the golden unicorns. <laughs> the inclusion and exclusion criteria are walking a very narrow line. This makes this quite different from some of the other papers we've talked about that are the very broad effectiveness trials. This is not that. Then they start phase one. In phase one, they monitored the participants on their current antidepressant, and they had to stay as depressed as they were throughout the prospective monitoring phase. Specifically, their MADRIS, which is the Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale, which is one of the primary outcomes. So it's the gold standard for FDA clinical trials for depression. And I actually really like the MADRIS. So in phase one, 
prospective observation. At the beginning of phase one, someone has been on their current antidepressant for at least two weeks. Their MADRA score could not decrease by more than 25% and had to be at 28 or higher. 28 is actually a pretty high MADRA score. So yeah. the, the maximum score of a MADRA is a 60. I've never seen a 60. Like the most severe person you're likely to have is probably 45, something like that. I thought usually when you did a trial, you ruled in who you were including and then you just got started. Having, <laughs> having this four weeks of making sure that their symptoms didn't get any better. Is this unusual? So let's talk about placebo run-in and placebo response and the problem of placebo response, uh, right? So why did they do this phase? I think it's largely about knocking out placebo responders. Marissa? I mean, sort of. I mean, it's not a placebo run-in. It's an active treatment run-in. So in that sense, it's more about showing that they're really treatment resistant. Although it's placebo response is tied in with that. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about what these ideas are. There is the possibility that someone could feel a great deal of relief that they have now gotten into a clinical trial. Um, like that gives them a lot of hope that their depression is going to get better. They are seeing the study team once or twice a week who is spending an hour with them doing a bunch of study assessments and they feel well cared for by the study team. It is possible that those sorts of interventions could start to bring their ratings on depression scales down. That starts to bring up concerns about placebo response, which depending on who you talk to is or is not a major problem in trials of antidepressants. So I don't I mean, know. No, it is a problem. Is. <laughs> but it's so interesting because what you were what you're describing as placebo response is exactly what in the psychotherapy research literature we call the most important common factors of psychotherapy. Yes. Right. The patient, right. Yes. the patient feels now that there's reason to hope that they have an alliance with some treaters around a shared treatment plan, that somebody else is actually in the situation with them. That's powerful stuff. Correct. So here's yes. one of the great ironies <laughs> of placebo responding. I did a slightly deep dive into the literature on, place on placebo responding in antidepressant trials. Kind of the most general consensus is that placebo response in antidepressant trials has been increasing for at least the last 30 years. Yes, that is definitely, if you just look at the data. Some of the first things, writings about this, so Walsh and colleagues, in a JAMA article in 2002, the article was titled Placebo Response in Studies of Major Depression, Variable, Substantial, and Growing. It was the, an early suggestion that there was this view that placebo response was a problem. Um, and that as more and more patients showed response and improvement in their depression scores in response to a placebo, it was going to be harder and harder to demonstrate the efficacy of a medication. In the Journal of Affective Disorders in 2009, Reif and colleagues published a meta-analysis looking at the placebo response in antidepressant trials. This meta-analysis looked at 96 studies that were published from 1980 to 2005. And they did find a consistent, consistent evidence for the placebo response but that the placebo response was larger in observer ratings than in patient self-reports, and that the observer rating showed an increase in the placebo response while the patient self-reports did not. Just sort of interesting, right? You would think that the clinicians would be the ones who were like being very rigorous, but that maybe the clinicians themselves wanted to see patients getting better. 
And then the the most recent big data set on this was from Furukawa and colleagues published in Lancet in 2016. And they actually looked at 252 antidepressant placebo-controlled trials conducted between 1978 and 2015. And they found that while the placebo response had increased from 1978 to 1991, it had been largely stable from 1991 to 2015. Um, I'll say one of the other really nice discussions of placebo response comes from Rutherford and Roos. It was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2013. They propose a whole model for what leads to placebo response. They do a very nice job of talking about like the placebo effect and placebo response are different. Placebo effect is just the like taking the pill. The placebo response is all of those other factors and things that occur in a clinical trial that might lead to so, yeah, placebo response includes regression to the mean, in yes. other words, and placebo effect is only from the intervention itself. So, like, meaning if you recruit a bunch of people into a study because they're all very sick, if you do absolutely nothing, on average, they'll become less sick because you picked them when they were very sick. So, you're not randomly picking depressed people. You're picking very sick, depressed people. And because depression tends to be an episodic illness, if you wait long enough, a bunch of them will just get better on their own. That's called regression to the mean. And so you need nothing. You'll see some placebo response. That's different from the placebo effect, which comes from the intervention that you use. Right. And regression to the mean is also a somewhat mathematical concept around if you keep measuring something, the mean it's the most likely score. If you keep measuring something, it, you'll get yes. more values that are closer to the mean than values that are farther away from the mean. I'm um, just nodding at us like, <laughs> yes, yes, I understand what you're talking about. You know, I, I actually getting the idea, it, well, it seems like there are a couple of different ideas around the same phrase of regression to the mean. So, so yes. the, the one that Marissa was getting at was the idea, which I thought was fascinating, that you bringing a bunch of people who are very, very sick into your trial, and you know that some people get better on their own. Depression is episodic, as you said. And so you couldn't call that a placebo. I can't remember which was which, the effect of the response, but you can see some things that would happen after the person had taken the pill but really have nothing to do with the experience of taking the pill. And then you have people who got better because they took the pill and all of those nonspecific effects of hopefulness and uh, anticipation that came with that. And then you had the third issue that you brought up about, well, if you just keep measuring things often enough, you tend to get things that are more closer to the average. So what you saw, Marissa, as me nodding along was actually my head just, you know, kind of spinning. And and the thing that Marissa described as regression to the mean, the natural history of depression is that some people will get better. There are some people who lump that under like natural history of the disease. Of course, some people with depression will also get worse. But if they're very sick when you bring them in, right? right there's there's more see, way for them to go to towards yes. better than way for them to go towards yes. worse. If we randomly chose them, some would get worse and some would get better. But when we choose them for being very sick, it's more likely that some that more will get better than get worse. But, that is so interesting. But but so but the other thing I think which we haven't talked about, which is important in this type of study though, is that data overall, all these papers that Adrian talked about, it feeling good about someone talking to you and the hopeful for taking a pill and all of those things, those things are much bigger and mildly depressed people. But that most of the time studies of more ill patients like this 
the placebo effect is smaller, or the placebo response is smaller, because these patients have already had a lot of failures, and so they don't feel as hopeful when they're trying something new as more mm -hmm. mildly depressed people. But I imagine that the FDA sort of told them you have to do this to show that you really have those folks and not people who are going to just respond to anything. I mean, I also think not be, even beyond the FDA doing it, Janssen has put a lot of money into developing this medication. They are going for FDA approval. They want to be sure they are demonstrating a response to medicine that separates from placebo. Separation from placebo is what the FDA requires for success, like a statistically significant p-value. And so they're spending a ton of money with this risk that they might not separate from placebo and then the trial will be a failure to the FDA. Right. Um, and then they can't make their money back. And they can't make money off of it. Sort of new drug development for CNS indications, which includes all of psychiatry, has not been a large focus of pharmaceutical companies in the last 15 years or so. And some of that is this speculation around the increase in placebo response and pharmaceutical companies being worried that it's going to be hard for them to demonstrate separation from placebo. And so that financially, CNS drug development is not worth it to them. Adam, this is where phase one comes from, is a consideration of all of these different factors balled up together. So we're just going to watch people on their old antidepressant and see what happens and make sure they're still really depressed. So once they've done that, they move into phase two, which is kind of where we think of a normal study is actually starting. In phase two, um, the patients are randomized to two different conditions. Everyone starts a new oral antidepressant. This is open label. They are put on an antidepressant that is available in the country that they're in and that they haven't been on recently and they haven't had horrible side effects to in the past. That's different from the one they've been taking. Half of the participants are randomized to placebo nasal spray and half of the participants are randomized to intranasal esketamine. And this is the point at which this question of active control starts to come up. Because yes. I just told you they were randomized to placebo nasal spray, but the title of the study says active control. Yes. There's so many problems with this, if you ask me. <laughs> I think this is time for you to rant. <laughs> I mean, I mean, so the first thing is, why on earth would they start them all, allow them to be started on a new antidepressant with very little restriction on what that could be? At the same time, they started this active, like the placebo versus esketamine phase. Doesn't make any sense to me. It's bad practice, first of all. And it doesn't, it seems like it can only confuse the results of the trial. And so I think this is what they mean by active control. Right, right? it's like they're We're, pretending that's an active control, but it's not, it's not an active control. When you read the words active control, what do you expect them to do? So this is literally, of course, coming from some of their other studies and other ketamine studies that I was an investigator on that were funded by the federal government. You would use a different drug in the nasal spray. So it has to be ketamine versus some other drug in the nasal spray, not ketamine versus placebo. That is an active control, right? It's the thing that is the equivalent of the of the S-ketamine. Right, and, and the most- Active control here was the idea of just being on a new antidepressant. I was reading into it the idea that ketamine must be only used as in addition augmentation. to- an, an Augmentation. Yes. Right, it's augmentation. Marissa, why isn't it an active control? If, because if, it's if, an augmentation. They're yeah. on an antidepressant and you add this or placebo, that is an augmentation trial. 
it it's is also not an active control. It's also worth noting what is the number one side effect of esketamine? Dissociation. Right. Do you think that if you spray something in your nose and then you dissociate, you might guess what medication you're on and then become unblinded? They right? present <laughs> data. I they, assume they collected it because they routinely do to have the patient and the, and the study staff guess and to test the blinding. But my experience from these studies in general is that there is no way you will not guess correctly with a uh, placebo. What I would expect to read when I see active control is it was something like midazolam nasal spray versus intranasal esketamine nasal yeah. spray. So because the, midazolam yeah. would make somebody kind of loopy and out of it. And that might not be totally distinguishable from dissociation. And esketamine makes some people just fall asleep as well. So all the IV studies, which were done in preparing this, like esketamine and all, all the IV studies, like in the literature generally, if they use an active control, it's almost always been midazolam. The title says active control, which if you read through the paper, you figure out the way they're using active control is that they're switching to a new oral antidepressant. The fact that that active control is not midazolam and the fact that there is no reporting of, we tested the blind and we can reassure you that the, the double blind was maintained, it starts to leave you just a little bit concerned. The, one of the only reassurances is that the Madras for Outcomes was done by a raider over the phone who did not know anything about the participant other than the fact that they were doing a Madras. Yeah, but the placebo effect is all about what the patient thinks. And if the patient knows they got the drug, I don't know. I mean, I I don't like it. Now, let me say, at the same time, with everything that we have said, I think intranasal esketamine is an effective medication for some patients with treatment-resistant depression. I know patients, I have worked with patients who have gotten better with this medicine and they have not responded well to other medicines. So I don't disagree with the approval. I recommend this medication to patients. But there are some things in this paper that are not quite... I mean, like, it's not... I don't... And I, I don't think Janssen did... You know, they care about following the FDA rules. They run a tight ship. They're not trying to fudge data. Adam, would you like to try and sum up our discussion about trial phases and the efficacy of intranasal esketamine in treatment-resistant depression? No, thank you. <laughs> so what I, what I understand was that I had questions about why, were these, why was it set up in these kinds of phases with this first phase of sitting around and watching and, and doing nothing for four weeks. And you guys have helped me understand that and then immeasurably complicate it even more. So what I understand was that they did that to do two things, to make sure that we really had people who were really very ill and had treatment-resistant depression, and that we had people who we were really least likely to see placebo response because we were really hoping to be able to demonstrate that there's an actual medication difference. And so we're, we're doing that, they're doing that for that end, but then there are a bunch of things then that make the both of you really skeptical about whether or not they actually successfully ruled out all of those placebo responses, but not so skeptical in the end that you don't think that it works. Yes, yes, I think that's fair. Probably. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Yeah No Journal Club. 
Prediction of the Yeah, No Journal Club is supported by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology Faculty Innovation and Education Award, awarded to me, Adrian Dela Cruz. The opinions and views shared in this podcast are the views of the individuals and do not represent views of any institution. Specifically, the opinions expressed do not reflect those of the ABPN, UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT System, or the state of Texas. You can find the Yeah, No Journal Club on your favorite podcast app. Please rate us and write a review. Visit our show page at www.yahnojournalclub.simplecast.com. That's Y-E-A-H-N-O journalclub.simplecast.com to learn more and find links to the article abstracts. We love your suggestions. You can email us directly at yahnojournalclub at utsouthwestern.edu. Do you need materials to run a journal club? You can find our journal club superstar curriculum the AdPert virtual training office or by visiting our show page. Keep listening so you can stop worrying and love the literature.